You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. When I die, scatter my ashes in the Garden of Megapines. You were told to bury your gods. You don't dare ask any questions. The sun beats down. Below you, the golden wild wheat waves in the wind, catches the sunlight. Great herds of gazelles sweep down from the east. The clouds skim across an endless sky. You can just see the glint of the great river with its arms around everything. This is the view your gods saw for years and years out of time. You kneel on the ground. Your knees are bare, bones pressed into the dirt. All around you, your brothers and sisters bend their backs to the work, and so do you. You carry your baskets of stones and rubble, bones from the ceremonies, bones from the ancestors. You bury them all together. Hours ago, you cleared out the temples, swept the floors. You laid your hand against the tallest megalith, the one where your father's spirit resides. You buried him not long ago, out in the old stone hills. Stone by stone and breath by breath, you buried him. You said your goodbyes, and then you came to the temple, leaned your forehead against the cool stone of the pillar god. You thought you could hear his voice speaking to you. He said, look to the stars, that's where I'll be. Now your priests say, you must bury your gods. The priests don't tell you why. They don't explain. They simply tell you the old gods are dead and this is what must be done. So you bury them, stone by stone and breath by breath, you bury them. You break the tiny statue your mother gave you, a talisman against the spirits that would take a child in its cradle. You lay its head near your father's pillar, and you say goodbye. Goodbye to the nights spent in these airless rooms. Goodbye to the old stone benches. Goodbye to the stories your mother told you of wildcat and boar and vulture. Goodbye to the headless men. Goodbye to your father, his hand warm and strong in yours as he points out the shapes in the stars. 
goodbye to the feast days, your bowl overflowing after a long day of raising new roofs and temples, goodbye to the meat and the beer, goodbye to full bellies and laughter, goodbye to the summer wheat, goodbye to gazelle and aurochs, goodbye to your father, goodbye to your mother, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Everything dies one day, even the gods must die. You do not understand why the world is as it is, but you feel that the gods are not gone. They are closer to you than your own breath. Once they lived in their temples, now they live everywhere. They are in the birds and the wild beasts. They are in the light shining off the great river. They are everywhere under your skin. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm a little weepy. I'm having feeling the feels right now, Jen. The thing is, like, and I'm just going to give you guys a little spoiler. This is not the first time or the last time we're going to see this in our Ancient Mystery series. Every time it hits me. Jen is really verklempt right now. I am. <laughs> you hit me in that sweet space I get once a month where my emotions are just... Both of us are on our periods. There is that. <laughs> Did I eat dinner? Am I drinking wine? Oh, she's drinking booze and berries, you guys. Just like the Sphinx episode. It's going to be a good one. And I had no dinner, so it really will be a good one. <laughs> we might be approaching Yule territory, but I don't want to make any elaborate promises. No, I'm only allowed to get that drunk on the podcast once every two years. Let's see what happens this Christmas time. <laughs> Yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Can't leave you hanging. <laughs> In our episode, we're bringing it all the way back to the Sphinx water erosion theory, which isn't that far back. It's actually just last month. In our episode on the Sphinx water erosion theory, we discussed the tinfoil hat theory that the Sphinx was 10,000 years old. This date would, of course, require us to completely reorder our sense of how humanity evolved. We assessed this theory, unpacked it, stripped it down to the studs, and found out that it was basically just Atlantis and cultural elitism at its core. It's just some fucking alien bullshit. It's simply too out there to be true. Cultural elitism. Atlantis. I'm out. But what if I told you, Jen, that there are sphinx water erosion theories that did turn out to be true? I'm listening. Sites whose shocking discovery did indeed require archaeologists to change the way they interpreted the evolution of humanity. What if I told you that you don't need to make up a whole new history of the Sphinx to have your truly ancient, truly groundbreaking, truly shocking, and established knowledge-defying mystery? You can have your cake and eat it too, anarchists of archaeology. You know you're calling to me, Jenny, when you say anarchists of archaeology. <laughs> oh, I know. I know I'm calling to a lot of people. My letter A emblazoned on my chest. <laughs> Thought it was for one thing. Turns out. <laughs> it also stands for adulterous. Adulteresses of archaeology. <laughs> it is like if the Sphinx really did turn out to be 10,000 years old, except it's not the Sphinx. And it's not in Egypt. It's in Turkey. It's called Gobleke Tepe. I can't. I can't even. I can't even stop. It's incredible. You guys. We move on. We explain. Hang on. I just ate a berry, so. Jen's booze and berries are already entering the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Future Jenny. And Future Jen. <laughs> and we are coming to you to tell you that, yes, if you haven't picked up on it, we are indeed pronouncing Gobekli Tepe wrong. I blame my dyslexia, but I don't know what Jenny's excuse is. 
I did all the research for this episode, and I watched several documentaries where they pronounced it right, and I read reams and reams and reams of research on this where they spelled it right, and it just went right over my head, and I continued to pronounce it Gobleki Tepe in my head the whole time. And Jen, what did you think it was pronounced? Because you thought it was pronounced something different. I thought that the pronunciation was Globeke, like a globe. I had done the graphics and I made this error in the graphics. Yeah, and I corrected her with another wrong spelling. <laughs> and then uh, someone on our Patreon alerted us to this. Uh, shout out to James Curtis. Thank you so much for telling us. Uh, apologies to anyone who speaks Turkish. We apologize. In a perfect world, we'd re-record it. But unfortunately, we have too many more episodes for this season uh, to get out to you. So we're not going to re-record this episode. We're just going to let it ride. <laughs> Enjoy a roughly hour and a half episode where we shamelessly mispronounce Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. So Gobekli Tepe is located in southeastern Anatolia, a region in Turkey, only about 10 miles northeast of the town of Sanlurfa. It's also on the northern curve of the Fertile Crescent the place where agriculture and complex societies supposedly began, ground zero for civilization. Much like the Sphinx, Gobleke Tepe is built on a limestone plateau, this one in the foothills of the Taurus Mountains, a place known as the Stone Hills. It overlooks a vast, sweeping landscape that's dry scrub now, but was once lush and green and full of everything Paleolithic and Neolithic peoples could ever want. Acres and acres of golden wild wheat, great herds of gazelles sweeping through with the turn of the seasons. They're still there today, actually. Along with herds of aurochs, birds, boar, wild donkeys, and more, drawn by the rich grasslands and marshes of the vast headwater of the Balak River, a tributary of the mighty Euphrates itself. Gobleki Tepe overlooks all of it. Archaeologists believe it's the first formal religious site ever built anywhere in the world, the first cathedral, and it really is 10,000 years old, if not more. Archaeology suggests it was in use for roughly 1,500 years, from around 9,500 to 8,000 BC. And I realize those dates are a little bit mind-blowing, so we're going to talk about those in more detail in a minute. So, from around, I'm going to say it again because it needs to be said again, from around 9,500 to 8,000 BC, until it was finally deliberately buried, its worshippers turning their back on it and walking away, disappearing into the future. Sometimes we get numbers and I really struggle to wrap my head around just how old that is, you know? Well, this is a lot older than anything else we've talked about on the podcast, as far as I can tell, I think. We're going to put those dates in context for you guys coming up. And for me. <laughs> and for the booze and berries, because we need to think about them as well. <laughs> They've entered the chat. So in the eons that followed, Gobleki Tepe was entirely forgotten. Its meaning and purpose were lost to history. The place where it was buried became just one hill among many in the stone hills. Gobleki Tepe is named for the hill it was buried under. The name means belly hill or pot belly hill or hill with a navel in Turkish because it resembles a gently rounded pot belly, according to the locals. Do you know what that reminds me of, Jenny? So I went to Delphi last month. Yeah, we're in October. I went in September. And Delphi is the navel. According to the Greeks, it was the navel of the world. I mean, obviously, it's not directly in the middle of the world. But according to mythology, it is the navel of the world, the belly button, if you will. We are going to drop this in November sometime. 
but we are recording it in October. So that's why Jen just said last month. That's why I said last month when I was referring to things that happened in September. Yeah. So the interesting thing that I find about this, Jenny, is this idea of belly buttons, right? Because like your belly button is an outside reminder of the fact that you were once a part of something slash someone else, right? It's kind of your connection to your ancestors and your spiritual line, if you will, your mom, but also everyone who came before all the DNA and everyone else who existed before your mom and your dad and, and your parents and their grandparents. And I kind of find it fascinating, this idea of belly button and navel, because it's where the umbilical cord attaches, right? It's where everything stems from. Spiritually, it's your metaphysical link to both this world and also the world beyond. That's so interesting that you say that because Gobleki Tepe is kind of, I mean, according to one interpretation, and I'm definitely putting my own fan fiction-y spin on it here, but it's it's our connection to a past that went beyond Gobleki Tepe, right? Like the connection to the people who lived in the Ice Age and before, those people who survived. And then everything that happened after, it is kind of the doorway into the modern world in a lot of ways. It's it's weird like that, you know? It kind of gives me chills just talking about it. It is, and it's so, again, it's so interesting. And I, I wouldn't have thought of it if I hadn't known that fact about Delphi. And then thinking about what your belly button really is, that's your actual place where you were connected to your parents and they were once connected to their parents and back. It's an unbroken chain that leads from the beginning to the end. I'm getting a little metaphysical here and I'm into it. A little woo-woo, a little metaphysical, but the booze and berries have entered the chat. And also, it's just that idea that different civilizations have that emphasis on belly buttons and navels. I feel like that's a little lost in today's day and age. Very true. So... For years, archaeologists believed that there was something under that hill. And that's because it looked like a tell. And a tell is a man-made hill or mound made of the accumulated debris and trash of a long succession of settlements on the same site. It's basically an ancient landfill that built up around towns, cities, and settlements of times past, over thousands of years. Ancient people buried themselves in their own trash. And that's why we have tells. Another thing they did was build over the remnants of their old buildings. So if a building just fell over because of, you know, age or whatever, or maybe it burned down in a fire, they would build over that until the whole city was built over the previous city, etc. And that's another way that you get a tell. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing with the archaeological site known as Troy, right? The city was razed to the ground many times. We're not talking about whether or not there was a Trojan War, but the, the site had several different cities below it. And you could see in the strata of the cities below it when those wars would have been and what that time frame would have looked like. These ancient cities and complexes were somewhere because they were strategically important and had good access to things like water and the sea and were probably um, defensible. So these were all reasons why you would rebuild in the same area, because it's like, well, we know what the area is, what it gives us, how to defend it. Even if it gets sacked, like we can rebuild better. So it makes a lot of sense that they would just rebuild over it because the infrastructure is already there for most of the things they need. Yeah. And a city like Troy, you know, the historical Troy was in a very strategic place. So they didn't want to move because where they were located, they had control over these really important shipping lanes in the sea. So like they had to be where they were. As far as I know, I mean, there are tells in other places, but the area that's really known for this is like the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent. So this is kind of in keeping with that. Yeah. So in 1963, a university survey uncovered stone slabs close to the surface, assumed to be medieval gravestones. 
that's one version of the story. In another version, it said that an archaeologist took one look at one of those stones and turned on their heel and walked back down the hill because they couldn't deal with the implications of what they've just seen. And, you know, this is an interesting story and maybe fan fiction, but you know my heart is with that second story, Jenny. Yeah, it's one of those things that I read somewhere and then went back to find, like, a quote on it and couldn't find it. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere, but I'm not sure where. But maybe I made it up, but maybe it's real. I don't know. I'm just including it because I love it. (laughs) That some archaeologists took one look at pieces of the site on the surface and just walked back down the hill and went, nope, nope o'clock. Nope to posting right out. (laughs) Nope rocket into the sun. By the end of this episode, you'll know why. So anyway, Gobleke Tepe was in a remote spot, one that was easy to forget about. No more digging was done on the site until 1994, when a German archaeologist named Klaus Schmidt visited the site. It's said that when Schmidt walked up Potbelly Hill for the first time, he found the ground carpeted with black, glittering flint tools. Not just pieces of flint, but deliberately shaped flint tools. And I'm going to quote from a book that he wrote about this. Quote, When we approached the flanks of the mound, the so far gray and bare limestone plateau suddenly began to glitter. A carpet of flint covered the bedrock and sparkled in the afternoon sun. We assured ourselves several times these were not flint nodules fragmented by the forces of nature, but flakes, blades, and fragments of cores. In short, artifacts. Other finds, in particular pottery, were absent. A site carpeted with deliberately napped flint and no pottery fragments at all? probably meant that it was older than pottery altogether. Schmidt understood that whatever was inside Potbelly Hill, it had to go back to incredibly deep antiquity. He got permission to excavate. It turned out that those stone slabs that other people had thought were medieval gravestones, the slabs that had allegedly sent another archaeologist 30 years prior running back down the hill, were actually the tops of huge megaliths. Schmidt uncovered a number of massive T-shaped pillars, some up to 18 feet tall, decorated with elaborate artwork depicting animals, clothing, disembodied body parts, as you do, and abstract designs. These immense monumental pillars were set within circular and rectangular enclosures made of unworked stone. Six of these structures have been unearthed so far. Ground-penetrating radar has discovered 16 more enclosures. 16! Each containing about eight pillars, adding up to 200 of these incredible pillars in total. That's what the tell was hiding. And the shocking part? Radiocarbon dating suggested that this site dated between 9,500 and 8,000 BC. It's the oldest megalithic site in existence and perhaps the oldest known religious site anywhere. So just to give you some perspective on these dates, Gobleke Tepe is 7,000 years older than the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge. So much older. The Great Pyramid and Stonehenge, both of them, are closer to us in time by a lot than they are to Gobleke Tepe. It's more than 6,000 years older than the earliest writing ever discovered. It was built entirely using Neolithic stone tools during an age called the pre-pottery Neolithic, older than any pottery ever found in the Fertile Crescent. And to be clear, there's pottery found elsewhere that's older, but in the Fertile Crescent, there is no pottery older than Gobleke Tepe. It was all made after. It's just completely beyond the range of what we typically think of as ancient. It's everything the water erosion theory advocates wish the Sphinx was. And yes, it absolutely did require archaeologists to rethink everything they knew about human development and history. 
So let's dive in. Again, just for people out there like me who maybe are struggling to put this into perspective, we are closer in time to the pyramids than Goblucky Tekbe is to the pyramids. The pyramids and writing in general? The closest thing in time to Goblucky Tekbe is the Ice Age. Pottery in general. Actually, there's some pottery that's older, but pottery in the Fertile Crescent, at least. Maybe that's a bad example. I don't know. I'm just forget about pottery. Forget about it. Imagine I didn't bring it up. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just like organized religion. That's the question here. The other stuff that we know about organized religion is from like Sumeria, like large organized religions. And that is closer in time to us than it is to Gobleke Tepe. My brain is just like, you know, it's it's just fragmenting into little pieces. It's fine. We haven't covered anything this old on the podcast. Like when we talk about ancient history, almost everything we talk about that we know about in archaeology is closer to us right now in the present in time than it is to Gobleke Tepe. Gobleke Tepe is an outlier in terms of how old it is. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker, We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, let's take a look at the structures and pillars and how they were built. The limestone pillars are generally T-shaped, like the letter T. Most of them are set within the interior walls of circular or square enclosures, made of rough, uncarved, and unworked stone. The usual arrangement is that most of the pillars will be built sideways into the walls of these enclosures, protruding out as if emerging from them, and in the middle of the room would stand two larger pillars set facing each other, kind of like altars? No, not at all. Like they're like freestanding pillars, like freestanding T-shaped pillars. If there was a roof on these enclosures, which is unclear, they might be holding up the roof. Okay. It's not clear if the enclosures ever had roofs. They may originally have been open to the air and no traces of roofs have ever been found. However, it's been noted that the freestanding stone megaliths are a bit unstable. The depressions in the ground that they stand in are not deep enough to support them, and today, many of the unburied ones are supported by metal cables. So there may originally have been roofs just to stabilize the megaliths. Maybe. I mean, this is one theory out of many. Yeah, we just don't know the answer to that question, but maybe. So this may be a little bit hard to picture. These monuments don't really look like anything else, which is why it's kind of hard to picture them. I don't know if you've ever been to the um, American Southwest and you've ever seen a kiva. A kiva is, um, this is a like a, a Native American, like the Hopi have them. Or, you know, it's in their history where it's like a um, kind of a sunken circular room that you enter into via a ladder in the roof. I believe that there are benches around the walls, but I'm not really sure. But this is a kind of a religious enclosure or structure. And I don't know if the circular enclosures at Gobleke Tepe were entered into via the roof, although they may have been because I don't believe that there are doors built into these walls. I would have to look at the diagrams I've seen again, but I don't think so. 
So it, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a kiva, like a circular uh, structure it may have been underground at the time, maybe not. It's a little bit unclear. But imagine one of those with Stonehenge in it. You say something like that and I'm like, how? So imagine Stonehenge inside a room, <laughs> a circular room. First off, for anyone who's ever been to Stonehenge, it's massive and, and the megaliths are very big. They are huge. So, like, how did they get in there? So these enclosures are large, some as many as 200 feet across. But with all the megaliths inside them, they look cluttered, you know? Like, I've seen them from above, and it looks real cluttered in there. But if you think about it, it's a really big room. It's just that Stonehenge is in there. When you have a lot of clutter, like six busts of Julius Caesar in any place, it's going to look cluttered. <laughs> or the entirety of Stonehenge <laughs> in a room. <laughs> I mean, I will say, like, the, the megaliths are different than the Stonehenge megaliths. You know, they're shaped differently and they're arranged differently. Um, I will put some pictures in the show notes. So if you want to see what this really looks like, you really have to see it. It's really hard to describe. Like I said, it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't look like anything else that we know about in history. A kiva with Stonehenge in it is probably the closest thing I can come to describing it quickly. <laughs> describing things with words. Uh, who does that? We're not people with a podcast and also writers. <laughs> so many things about Gobleke Tepe are hard to describe because there just isn't anything else like this in, in history that we know about, or at least that I and Jen know about. So we're kind of left describing it in weird ways. One of the things about that is how far back in time it is, and another one is just what it looks like visually. Yeah, and I think part of that also is we are trying to give you, the listener, some reference points to it. And as Jenny said, like, there aren't really any reference points because it's so unique. So saying, like, it looks like a Kiva with Stonehenge in the middle is for you to get a scope of the size of course, they don't look like that, you know, exactly like that. But we're just trying to give you an example so you can think about it in a way that to a modern listener who has a modern Western frame of reference can get their head behind it. Anyway, so I'm going to continue with this description because there's really more to it. Let me tell you what. So the walls of these enclosures that we're talking about, they're not kivas. They're quite different. The, the only real similarity is that they're circular, a few unclear things like they may have been entered through the roof, but that's unclear. So the walls of these enclosures are lined with low stone benches. They're built into the walls. In one enclosure, there's an elaborately carved stone portal that archaeologists believe might have been a way that people entered. And this would have been really claustrophobic because it's only 15 centimeters or 19 inches across. And like I said, I'm not sure that there are doors into these enclosures. I meant to double check this before the episode and I didn't. Some of the floors are limestone bedrock, but others are terrazzo which is a kind of limestone concrete. Some researchers believe that the concrete was made to reproduce the look of the original limestone bedrock and that there might be older floors underneath. There was plaster on the wall of at least one enclosure, and one thing not found is pottery or bronze or metal tools because Gobleke Tepe is older than both of those things by thousands of years. They had just not been invented yet. So just, I feel like we all need to take that in, right? Plaster and concrete are older tech than pottery. I mean, to be fair, pottery existed maybe 20,000 years ago in China, but at least in this area, plaster and concrete were older tech than pottery, and I'm a little bit freaking out about that. Do you want me to tell you why I think plaster and concrete being older tech makes a lot of sense to me? Please do. So both plaster and concrete are things that essentially stick together and make other things stick together. They're like various kinds of rock 
and or earth that you put with water that makes them sticky. Exactly. So I think it's an easier thing in a lot of ways to discover because you see things that get stuck together when the sun dries and hardens them out and now they're together, right? And if you add a little water, you can loosen them up maybe. I get that technology, whereas pottery is clay that has to be shaped and then fired. And then usually if you want to consume something out of it glazed in some way, like that is a more difficult thing to discover. And it actually, to me, and I'm, again, lay woman who's had booze and berries tonight. To me, the discovery of concrete and plaster is what leads you to think, what happens to clay when we put it in heat? You get pottery. That's a really good point, Jen. It makes sense. Like when you tell it to me like that, it makes sense why in some places at least plaster and concrete would be older tech and and discovered sooner than pottery because they're almost like the intermediate step before we get to pottery, right? Yeah. Because clay can be manipulated, but it won't stay in that shape unless you take, you know, unless you fire it. Right. And you have to fire it to a point where it doesn't just crack. It like has to be the right level of heat that will make it stable. I know nothing about pottery. I'm just saying this off the top of my head. (laughs) I could be wrong, but... Anyone who would like to support my knowledge and Jenny's knowledge of learning more, please get in touch because I would love to learn about pottery. If you're an expert in pottery in different areas of the world that tells different stories, please get in touch with us. We have a series coming up called Women of Myth. We'd love to talk about mythology through pottery, particularly women's mythology through pottery. So the pillars are the oldest megaliths ever discovered in the world. They're carved from the limestone bedrock the monument sits on by workers using flint tools. They're elaborately carved mostly with animal imagery, foxes, lions, bulls, gazelles, donkeys, insects, spiders, snakes, aurochs, and aurochs are a huge cow that is now extinct but used to roam parts of Europe, the Fertile Crescent, and birds, but the birds in particular that we see are especially vultures, carrion birds. The enclosures that have been excavated each appear to have an animal theme. Enclosure A is full of snakes. Enclosure B is ruled by the fox. Enclosure C appears to have been all about the boars. Enclosure D has a bird motif. And enclosure H is overrun with wildcats. Many of this imagery is carved in high relief, where the surrounding stone is chipped and polished away and the figure of the animal is raised. Others are even more elaborate than that. There's at least one fully carved animal protruding out of a pillar, with just its feet attached. Archaeologists think that this is a wild cat. Yeah, and it's kind of cool because it appears to be stalking another animal near it, like below it, which is carved in like high relief. I think it's like a boar or something. I'm not sure. I couldn't carve something like that now with all of technology. How did people do that? Like, I know how they did that, but the artistry and the talent and the craftsmanship on display here is utterly fascinating. There are a few images of humans on the pillars. However, one interesting detail is that the freestanding T-shaped pillars in the center of the enclosures, because remember, there are pillars emerging from the walls, and then in the middle there are two T-shaped pillars facing each other in each of these enclosures. It's a little bit of a weird scene. And those middle pillars are freestanding, or perhaps they were holding up a roof. It's a little unclear. One interesting detail about the central freestanding T-shaped pillars is that they have human arms carved on their sides, folded over their bellies, with stylized loincloths carved on the lower half of the pillar. And this suggests that the pillars themselves were intended to be humanoid figures. So that's like the freestanding pillars, 
The ones emerging out of the walls, I believe those tend to be the ones with all the animal carvings on them. Just in terms of the history of Kublake Tepe, archaeologists differentiate between three distinct layers of history at the site. Layer three is the oldest. This is where the most massive, elaborately carved pillars appear, set within circular enclosures. Radiocarbon dating suggests that these early circular enclosures were primarily built between roughly 9500 and 8800 BC. They were most likely not all built at the same time, but rather consecutively. It appears that the builders would build an enclosure and then completely backfill it and build another new one once every few centuries or once every few decades even. This continued for hundreds of years. So fascinating. You just have to wonder why that was the process. Well, we kind of talk about that later in this episode. The boozenberries are speaking. <laughs> Don't worry, boozenberries. We'll get to it. I realized boozenberries wasn't there for the rehearsal, so. <laughs> <laughs> they were not. Boozenberries want to text my husband to be like, make the sausage and mash now. <laughs> Bring me the sausage and the mash. Sacrifice it to my hungry maw. <laughs> Sacrifice it to go black a tape. <laughs> anyway. That's what I'm calling my, my pie hole these days. <laughs> so, layer two occurs between 8,800 and 8,000 BC. Here's where the architecture changed. People began scaling back their ambitions. Square enclosures started to replace the round ones. And the great T-shaped pillars are smaller and less numerous. A stone pillar was discovered in this layer that kind of resembles a totem pole. It's almost two meters high and depicts three entities, either animal or human. It's a bit tough to tell. Anyway, at the end of layer two, roughly 8,000 BC, the people of Gobleke Tepe buried their cathedral. They didn't just abandon it to the elements and walk away. They first meticulously cleaned and then deliberately buried it filled in all the exposed enclosures with refuse and heaped more on top until they were left with a featureless hill, mainly made of flint and limestone rubble from the nearby quarry mixed with discarded stone tools and vessels and human and animal bones. They built the tell deliberately and then just walked away. Nobody knows why. They killed their gods, Jen. Why did they kill their gods? I don't think they killed their gods. I think what they did here was kind of like burying their gods so no one else could have access to them. Kind of like, you know, we see like ancient like caches of coins and stuff. I think they were burying their gods. I think maybe they had to leave the area or there was some instability and they were like, these are our gods. No one else can take them or manipulate them or have anything to do with them. They belong to us. We're putting them in the ground and we will come back to them one day and unbury them when we are, like, in control of this land. That's what I think. As a person who grew up religious, I'm like, they didn't kill their gods. They buried them to keep them safe. They didn't want their temple desecrated. It's so interesting because I feel like I see it so differently. I'm just like, well, if they bury their gods, that means that their gods must be dead. And Jen is like, no, they're going to come back to life like King Arthur someday when the world needs them. So much of that King Arthur mythology is then based in Christianity and the return of Christ. But anyway. It makes a lot of sense that this is your angle. I grew up Catholic, yes. And it, and it is one of those things where, like, I'm like, no, don't you see, like, they will return to those gods. They will pull them out of the earth and they will be safe and secure in whatever this land is. And I again, I feel that way because of the way I grew up. It's difficult to know how much of that is the mythology, mythographer, folklorist in me who also is influenced by a Western lens. You know, Jen? I'm going to say something you're not going to like. 
Your Christian monk is showing. (laughs) You know, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you in this moment. That is one of those things someone who has grown up Christian Catholic, particularly of our generation, has to deal with. However, what I will say to me that makes me feel like they were planning to return and keep their gods safe is the fact that they cleaned the site. They kept the site as pure as they could. And then they buried it and hid it again the way we see later in ancient cultures where people are like, I need people to to think that nothing is here so that it's safe, so that I can return. The fact that they didn't return is the thing for me. They didn't return. And we don't have any evidence that this was a period of strife, that they buried their gods out of strife, you know, like under duress. They did it. And then they left and they could have returned, but they didn't return. Where did they go? I mean, there's different theories about that, but I haven't seen one that says that they were under duress and were all killed off or something. You know, and I will say this to you. It is so ancient. We don't know 100% where they went. We don't know why they didn't come back. There is a history of people doing this, of abandoning these sacred sites in certain ways that makes me think... There is something about either the people coming to a new religion, a new faith, or wanting to preserve something so other people can't defile it. And again, I don't know that that's correct because I'm not a historian or an archaeologist, but we don't know because this is so old what was happening. And I agree with Jenny. I don't want to put too much of, of my own lens on it, but I do think it is fair to say that the care they took I do think they were intending to return, but it's also possible that their gods had given them a lot of stuff that didn't make them happy and they were done. Honestly, I think the idea that they intended to return is is real fan fiction. I think the idea that they were angry at their gods is unlikely because of the care that they took in burying it. To me, that's like they wanted to protect them, right? Like maybe in terms of respect, like the way that you would bury a loved one is how I see it. They're burying a loved one who is dead. They love these gods. They're not going to continue worshiping these gods because the gods are dead. We don't know why they thought their gods were dead. We don't know why they died. They buried their loved ones and then they went on into the future is how I see it. But like Jen said, these these sites are so old. Our connection to it is so tenuous. And we both Jen and I find ourselves writing our own fan fiction based on our own histories and prejudices and our own knowledge of things that are more modern. All of that is tenuous. Take Everything we say in terms of putting a spin on this with a grain of salt. Yeah. Again, I go back to that great advice we had from Barry Strauss. Like, don't try to fit the narrative to the story you want to tell. So anyway, so we've talked about layer three and we've talked about layer two, but there is in fact a layer one. Layer one is what formed after people left. It's basically the top layer of the hill. And this is composed mostly by loose dirt and sediment. And some really interesting finds have been found on the surface. Numerous arrowheads and flint tools have been found here that date from around this time, as well as at least one fascinating figurine that may depict a trans or non-binary person. That's one interpretation of this figurine. It's so fascinating. I'm going to put a link in the show notes about it. This is its own little diversion that I didn't have time to cover, but look to the link in the show notes. There are articles about this. So what does this all fucking mean? So this is impossible to say. Jen and I have flailed at this already in this episode, but that doesn't stop people, including us, from developing our own little fan fiction-y theories, and some of them are more, than, more informed than ours. And we do have some interesting clues about the meaning of the site that I'm just going to go through for you here. So first things first, 
Gobleka Tepe is a sausage fest. Oh, tell me more about these sausages. <laughs> oh, I will. So most of the animals and humans depicted at the site are male, or perhaps they just have a peen, because it is real peen-centric over at Gobleka Tepe, let me tell you what. I will say that, you know, especially in light of what we just told you about this transgender figurine that has been discovered, may or may not be transgender, that's one interpretation, this site is quite possibly older than gender as we understand it. So I wouldn't necessarily say everything in the site is male. I would say everything at this site has a penis. Some figures don't have a penis. They don't have any genitals depicted. But if they do have genitals depicted, it is almost always a penis. The tall pillars with folded arms and loincloths don't have visible penises. I love that I'm now talking about the visible penises on the pillars. This is great. This is what the booze and berries showed up for. I'm here to talk about whether or not the megalith has a dong. That's all I want to do. The boosenberries are super sex positive. I am a little prudish, but the boosenberries is super sex positive. <laughs> okay, horse phallus. It's not my fault I grew up very Catholic. <laughs> the Catholic ones are the dirtiest ones. So I will say that these tall pillars with folded arms and loincloths don't have visible penises. It's real important that I talk about whether or not they have a visible dong. But the loincloth that they're wearing is generally seen as a coated male garment, and no breasts are visible, which would have coated the pillars female. Again, your guess is as good as ours in terms of gender as opposed to biological sex. There is one female figure, or at least, you know, biologically female figure depicted that I know about that is explicitly female. This is a woman's naked body on a stone slab from layer two, so not the oldest layer. I'm going to provide this image in our show notes, too, because it is it is really you just have to see it. It's like a woman with breasts and she's kind of squatting and there is something coming out of that vag. It looks like some limbs. It might be an octopus, hands, arms, an octopus. Maybe she's going through childbirth. I think she's going through childbirth and I think it isn't going well or it's a monster or an octopus. If you can see the hands and arms. That's a good sign. If you can see the legs and arms, but no head, that's a bad sign. That's a breach. I think you can see the legs and arms, and I don't think you can see a head. But if they're coming out, that's good, right? Like, as opposed to if they're stuck in there. Uh, yes and no. If they're coming out with a cord wrapped around the head, that's part of what happens potentially, I think, in a breech birth. So it means that the, the child has been um, cut off from oxygen. So it might be a bad sign for the child, depending on how long the labor has been, how long they've had the cord wrapped around their neck. Generally, a favorable position is head first. If you are a, let's say, Paleolithic or Neolithic culture, this is a depiction of a birth where the baby and the mother are probably both going to die. If you take this image at face value and if it's not a stylized representation of something else. Potentially, yes. A lot of it depends on the tearing and the bleeding inside. Like, I don't want to get too graphic, but a lot of it does depend on what's been torn and the bleeding inside. Generally, breached births were much more high risk in the ancient world and did often result in fatalities for at least the baby many times a mother. Again, it, a lot of it depends on the internal bleeding. Obvious disclaimer, neither one of us are medical professionals. We are just speculating. Do you know what this makes me think of? Okay, so you know the vaginas with the teeth inside when you that like bite off heads of men? Vagina dentata? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How scared were men of vaginas? I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a, a woman whose vagina is belching out something terrifying that we can only see part of. And maybe there's teeth in there. I don't know. Well, again, thinking about how men would see births, particularly breech births that didn't go well, is it an unfavorable vagina? Was this carving 
carved by a man, which goes back to the um to the sausage fest observation that we have. So Klaus Schmidt, the original archaeologist who discovered Goblake Tepe, believed it was a sort of Paleolithic mountain sanctuary. He referred to it as a cathedral on a hill, and I hate that phrase. I mean, how much are you a fan of Ronald Reagan? <laughs> but also Cathedral on a Hill, I think, has Christian sort of, like, to me, I feel like it has, like, conservative Christian feels. But anyway. I think that you're right, but I don't think he meant it that way. Well, no, because this is this is earlier than that. But anyway, Klaus's interpretation was that it was a major pilgrimage destination and that it attracted people from up to 90 miles away to celebrate important festivals. And I will say that it's probably even further away than 90 miles away. And we'll get to that, too. Yeah, that's the conservative estimate, right? It's interesting to note that Gobleke Tepe was not an inhabited site for most of its history. Although recently there was some evidence of a village here beneath the oldest layers, found through ground-penetrating radar that hasn't been excavated yet. There is evidence that large-scale feasting activity took place here. Among the backfill in the site, there are copious amounts of butchered animal bones, gazelle, pigs, deer, and geese. Gazelles still cross the plains below Goblake Tepe, and likely did then as well. So these feasts were probably timed to the migration season. They could be indicative of massive group rituals or festivals tied to certain seasons. One extremely intriguing idea that I cannot stop thinking about is that the people of Gobleke Tepe were involved in a cult of the severed head. You know I love a cult of the severed head wherever I find it. This is how you get Jenny interested in you. You're like, hey, have you heard the good news about the cult of the severed head? Tell me more. Let me look at your pamphlet. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I'm just here for Dionysus, carnage and going wild. But you, sever me some heads, babe. I'm about a very specific kind of carnage, you see. (laughs) The carnage of the severed head. No complete human skeletons have been uncovered at Gobleke Tepe so far. But a large number of fragmented human bones have been found. Almost all of the fragmented bones are in fact from skulls, and many have marks that indicate deliberate decapitation and defleshing, probably shortly after death. Three whole entire unbroken skulls have also been found, all with deliberate carvings made in the bone that are too deep to be simple butchering or defleshing. They may have been ritualized or decorative. These skulls represent perhaps the oldest examples of deliberately carved or modified skulls in existence. A study evaluated these skulls and compared them to more recent skull cult practices in other cultures, including trepanation, cannibalism, the making of art objects and artifacts like goblets, and modifications related to ancestor worship or fertility rites. No connections were found. These modifications were not similar to any other skull cult activities known on the planet. So whatever the skull cult of Gobleke Tepe was, it wasn't like any other skull cult known. It was its own thing. One of the skulls had a hole drilled into the bone as well. So Jenny, this kind of sounds like trepanning to me. Because like trepanning is where they would like drill holes somewhere in the head, I don't know where exactly, to essentially let in like the voices of their gods, right? Or something like that. Sometimes, I mean, it might have been or it could have been done to relieve swelling in the brain as like a medical measure. But I don't believe archaeologists think that this is an example of trepanning. So the grooves on the three skulls were carved to run up the forehead and over the back of the head. And researchers think that those grooves were there to keep a cord from slipping. Jen, 
You know those like sort of three level baskets in the kitchen that you hang from a ceiling? It's like that, but with skulls. Oh, <laughs> skull wind chimes almost. Kind of like skulls that are dangling from a all one cord and there are grooves carved into the skulls to hold the cord in place. And then a hole drilled in the top of the skull that the cord would pass through. And this is just one theory about these skulls and what, what these carvings were. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of dark. The carvings on the megaliths also hinted at a cult of the severed head. For instance, a decapitated body with an erect penis is found on one of the pillars with a huge vulture looming over it. This is the vulture stone. Other human head imagery can be found elsewhere. You know, Jenny, sometimes when men die, they do get an erection, right? Particularly when they're hung, like, in hangings. And I would imagine, like, maybe when you get your head cut off, depending on how you got your head cut off, you might have an erect bean. I feel like this is a thing that requires more Googling, but I would say that I've heard about that in terms of hanging. I I wouldn't say I've heard about it in terms of decapitation. Sometimes when male dead bodies will have erections that are, and there is leakage, but it's not like a ejaculation. It's kind of just like blood and, and just stuff that race there when they died. That is a great story, Jen. I love it when Jen tells me a nice, fun bedtime story. <laughs> erection bedtime story you're welcome <laughs> someone is listening and is like take away her booze and berries <laughs> chen is no longer allowed to podcast while under the influence of booze and berries anyway we're gonna move on in addition to the pillars about 143 sculptures have been found at gobleke tepe 43 of those are probably human and almost all are just the head And even more strange, it seems the heads of the statues were broken off the bodies before burial. Matching torsos have never been found. The statues and figurines found at Gobleke Tepe were not just thrown away randomly. They were deliberately placed in the enclosures, often next to the pillars, in a way that seems to show reverence and deeper meaning, just before the entire structure was deliberately buried for the last time. Whatever the people here were doing... They weren't simply tossing pieces of broken statue into the backfill as trash. It's not clear what this means, but it does suggest a deliberate ritual fragmentation with meaning attached to decapitated heads. Yeah, see, this to me proves my theory and even Jenny's theory about them killing their gods or burying their gods to return later. There's a reverence here, right? A ritual. Exactly. I don't know which of us is right here, but I think the idea that there's reverence here in this burying is is true. So another interesting thing is that the large stone pillars with arms and loincloths, the ones that seem to represent human beings themselves, these figures don't have heads either. Archaeologists believe that the T part of the T-shaped pillar is supposed to represent shoulders and the heads are absent. If the pillars represent gods, the gods are decapitated. So Jenny, another theory is that this might have been an astronomical observatory. Many large megalithic structures from the Neolithic, Stonehenge, the Pyramids, Newgrange in Ireland, and many others have an astronomical element. The builders constructed them carefully to align with certain stars at certain times of the year. 
perhaps to predict growing seasons or keep track of the passing of time. There are some archaeologists who believe that Gobleke Tepe had an astronomical element as well. And to me, this makes total sense, right? Because you've got these T-shaped pillars, right? And different times of the year, based on when the sun comes up and goes down, you create like a maze how, right? Where it essentially tells you this is your planting season. This is when the days get shorter because this is where the sun will rest on these shoulders. Just like you see in Stonehenge. So what you're saying is that maybe Gobleke Tepe's megaliths were built so that the sun would rest on the headless megaliths' shoulders at certain times of year. That's what I think. The other thing is that they could have been built, because you've got two of them, that the moon was resting to tell you the different phases in the moon. The moon changes throughout the month, so maybe one was aligned with the sun and one was with the moon. I haven't seen that written anywhere, and I would think that people would have noticed it by now. Like, there is the theory that there would have been roofs on these enclosures, in which case you wouldn't have seen what the sky was doing. You know, all these different enclosures buried were in slightly different positions. Like, they weren't all in the same position, one on top of each other. So that would have changed their alignment. And so we don't really know. There's a lot of things we don't know in terms of the alignment. And I will say that there are some theories that are considered to be legit. There are some theories that are considered to be kind of uh, woo-woo. And that the people who actually work at Gobleke Tepe and restore it, the archaeologists involved in that work who know the most about the site, don't believe any of the archaeoastronomical theories that are out there today. So that should tell you something because these are the people most knowledgeable about the site. Absolutely. And I think like it's always interesting to, again, say these people did this, so maybe these people did that. And, you know, it's fun as a lay person to think about that. But the reality is you are putting your lens and your thoughts on something that may not be related in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I mean, even archaeology isn't an exact science. Like archaeologists also have their own lenses. So as Jenny said, there are two major theories about Goplake Tepe's astronomical qualities. One is relatively legit, and one is pseudoscience. It should be noted that neither is accepted by the archaeologists who actually work on the site and who specialize in it. So take both with a giant salt lick or a sphinx that you've been licking for a long time and shouldn't be. Leave that poor sphinx alone. Stop licking the sphinx, you guys. Stop it. So (laughs) the theory that's more legitimate has to do with Sirius, the dog star. The Earth's axis has wobbled at various times throughout the millennia, and when it does this, it can change which stars can be seen in the night sky. Throughout history, some stars have vanished at certain points in history and then reappeared as if newly created, all because of fluctuations in the Earth's axis. Sirius is one of those. Sirius, the dog star, is one of the brightest stars visible in the night sky today. The ancient Greeks called it Orion's dog. The Egyptians built their calendar around its rising and setting but it wasn't always visible in the place where the Greeks and Egyptians knew it to be. Where Gobleke Tepe is located, Sirius would not have been visible in the night sky at all prior to around 9300 BC, when it would have appeared suddenly on the horizon as if by magic. So Giulio Magli, an archaeoastronomer from the University of Milan, believes that Gobleke Tepe was built to venerate this new star, and that its appearance was so significant it could have given rise to a new religion. He says that the large central pillars were built to frame the star in the night sky. This theory is not pseudoscience, but it's not widely accepted by researchers who actually work on the dig site. One of the things they point out is that the enclosures may have had roofs, 
which means that whatever people were doing in there, it wasn't observing stars. Right. And if you look at how the central pillars in the enclosures were balanced, I think it's likely that there were roofs, but there have been no traces of roofs found in any of the excavations. And you would think there would be some trace that roofs existed. Sure, but it's 10,000 years and we don't know what they made those roofs out of. I kind of feel like maybe they had a central hole in the center where you might have had things coming in, like light and stuff like that. However, there is no evidence of this. So that's that's one archaeoastronomy theory that is fairly legit. There are, of course, pseudoscientific theories that have risen up around Gobleke Tepe. Maybe the aliens built it. Maybe it was Atlantis. Maybe it was the original Garden of Eden. Oh, your Christian monk is showing even more than mine. These are all obvious pseudoscience, right, and easy to dismiss. But sometimes the pseudoscience is less easy to spot. That's basically the theme of our Sphinx Water Erosion Theory episode. There is one pseudoscience theory that I do think provides a prime example. It's kind of like the Sphinx Water Erosion Theory for Gobleke Tepe. Like, it looks kind of legit until you break it down. I've seen this theory appear in legit-looking websites and articles, such as the March 2017 issue of the Journal of Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry, which I think is a perfectly legitimate journal, I'm pretty sure. It also appears, though, in a book called Magicians of the Gods by Graham Hancock. Oh, boy. (laughs) Kind of like Chariots of the Gods. It's a real callback. And let me tell you what, our guy Robert Schock has written about it, so I feel pretty comfortable... Oh, fuck off. (laughs) Right. So I feel pretty comfortable calling this one pseudoscience. It's called the Younger Dryas Theory. This theory states the pillars of Gobleke Tepe document a world-changing cataclysmic event, the collision of a comet with the Earth 13,000 years ago. So one thing you have to understand about the people who built Gobleke Tepe is that they were hunter-gatherers, just emerging from thousands of years of survival in the most brutal Ice Age conditions. And they had seen some shit. The most recent Ice Age period to their time is referred to as the Younger Dryas, a period when a warming Earth briefly returned to Ice Age conditions, lasting from roughly 12,900 to 11,700 BC. This shift from warmth to Ice Age happened fast, within decades, and it was quite severe. It would have been devastating to the people who lived during this time, and it happened only about 2,200 years before Gobleke Tepe was built. Maybe it hadn't happened within living memory, but there would probably have been cultural memory and mythology around it. Think about it, Jen. The Ice Age was as close to Gobleke Tepe as the death of Christ is to us. So nobody knows what caused the Younger Dryas, but one theory is that a comma did it. The Younger Dryas theory states that the carvings on the pillars at Gobleke Tepe document this earth-shattering, highly traumatic cosmic event that would have been burned into the minds, memories, and mythologies of these ancient people. So that article from the Journal of Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry was written by two researchers, Demetrios Sikritsis and Martin B. Sweatman. Two sexy names. Two academics from the University of Edinburgh. According to that article, the animals on the pillars represent constellations, and they're telling us when this comet impact took place. That's what the theory is. The argument centers on the vulture stone, one of the most elaborately carved pillars at Gobleke Tepe. According to the theory, it's trying to give us a precise date of when the comet struck. The vulture stone is admittedly really weird. 
That's the one with the uh, decapitated penis man. It depicts at least four vultures, the most prominent of which faces the viewer with its head turned to the side, extending one wing straight out, holding up a sphere. There are abstract designs that younger Dryas enthusiasts believe are depictions of deadly comet shards falling to Earth. Beneath the vultures lies the decapitated body of a man with an erect peen. According to proponents of this theory, that man represents the trauma and death caused by the comet. It was, according to Swetman, quote, probably the worst day in history since the end of the Ice Age. And if you take that on face value, sure. Secrete Sis and Swetman used... (laughs) (laughs) Jenny, I feel I can can feel from this theory I'm going to get to Atlantis. (laughs) Or aliens so soon. I think you know where this is headed. <laughs> I can see a logic to this theory, right? Like, it is a cultural memory of trying to preserve something. That is the danger because there is a logic to it, right? Like, a cultural memory, a huge event. If we take that they're closer to the Ice Age than the pyramids, we get there, right? However, if you can't see Atlantis coming, then this podcast is going to tell you Atlantis is coming. If you can't see Atlantis coming like a comet in the sky headed towards Earth, then we're here to point out that that comet is in the sky and it's headed towards Earth, folks. (laughs) This comet is called Ancient Aliens slash Atlantis. It's called Cultural Elitism. That's the name of the comet. (laughs) So, Secretus. (laughs) (laughs) And Sweatman. (laughs) Anyway, so Secretus and Sweatman. Massive loads. <laughs> <laughs> Sigridus and Sweatman use software to match the animals depicted on the stones in Goblake Tepe with patterns in the night sky to determine what constellations were visible when, again, logical process. One date that appeared to sync with animals depicted at Goblake Tepe was 10,950 BC. A date that roughly, if you're really looking for it, aligns with the Younger Dryas. So the Younger Dryas, we don't even know, is a thing, right? Well, we know that 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 was the Ice Age is called the Younger Dryas. We're pretty sure that's a thing. What we don't know is that a comet did it. We also don't know that Gebleke Tepe was documenting this comet. Those are the two questions. Fair enough. So as we've said, this theory that Gobleke Tepe lines up with the Younger Dryas and maybe this Ice Age is highly controversial. And as a result, it's a magnet for pseudo-historical theories. For instance, as Jenny mentioned earlier, it feeds right into a certain Robert Schock's ideas. So, you may remember Robert Schock from our episode on uh, the Sphinx water erosion theory. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Was it? (laughs) Short answer, no. Long answer, it took us an hour and a half to get there. Robert Schock's big overarching theory is that an advanced civilization existed on Earth 10,000 or more years ago. Spoiler, it was Atlantis. And... That it was destroyed by solar flares around the time of the Younger Dryas. Kublake Tepe feeds right into Robert Schock's theory. To Sphinx water erosion enthusiasts, it offers redeeming proof that the Sphinx could have been built 10,000 years ago. And there are some who think both the Sphinx and Kublake Tepe were built not by the people who actually lived in their area, but by an ancient advanced civilization that was wiped off the earth by a natural disaster. This leads us to the elephant in the room. The thing I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, especially if you listen to that Sphinx episode we did. 
What makes the Sphinx water erosion theory pseudoscience and Gobleke Tepe real? That's a question worth answering. We're going to indulge it, okay? Let's talk about Gobleke Tepe versus the Sphinx. So why do archaeologists take the dating of Gobleke Tepe seriously, but not the water erosion theory dating of the Sphinx? That date, 10,000 years ago, is just as revolutionary for both theories, even if, especially if, you believe that both these monuments were built by people with the Stone Age technology of the time, not a mystical woo-woo advanced civilization. Why is one pseudoscience and one legit? So first, there's the dating of the Sphinx versus Gobleke Tepe. The Sphinx is, as we talked about over and over, notoriously hard to date. Archaeologists believe it was built around 4,500 years ago by the pharaoh Khafre, who built the Second Pyramid and the Pyramid Complex at Giza. But to get to that date, they had to rely on circumstantial evidence, such as interpreting how different features of the Giza Pyramid Complex are laid out to determine what was built first, and dating other structures like the Sphinx and Valley Temples. We're not saying the dating is wrong. What we're saying is the dating methods are more complicated and more circumstantial. They're hard to explain to lay people, including the person talking to you right now. And here's the thing, because they're complicated and difficult to explain, that leaves an opening for alternate theories to arise. With Gobleke Tepe, the dating is extremely definitive. We have plaster on the walls of some of the enclosures with organic material that can be carbon dated. There are bones in the backfill. You could argue that maybe the plaster was put on the walls a lot later, or the backfill happened much later than the original construction. But if you carbon date that stuff and what you get is an extremely early date, it means the structure has to be at least that old. We have ample organic materials we can carbon date. And that's not necessarily always true for sites like this. You know, that's one of the things that makes Gobleke Tepe really special. So another thing to look at here is archaeological context. So one question archaeologists ask when people start claiming the Sphinx is 10,000 years old is this. Where is the evidence for the complex society that could have built the Sphinx that early? Where is the archaeological context? Look, it's easy to say that the sands of the Sahara swallow a lot of things, and no doubt there's still stuff to be found. But the Giza Plateau has been really thoroughly picked over. Why is there nothing, not a stone tool, not an outbuilding, nothing, to suggest that people were actually there in large enough numbers to build the Sphinx that long ago? There just isn't that archaeological context. We do have that context for Gobleke Tepe. Even before they excavated, archaeologists found stone tools littering the ground on the hill that was buried under. Stone tools from the Neolithic and Paleolithic. Not even a single pottery shard among them. The pillars are carved with animals such as the aurochs, which lived in the area 10,000 years ago and is extinct. Beyond that, though, Gobleke Tepe is part of a landscape of settlements all throughout the Stone Hills, all built in roughly the same era. These are some of the oldest settlements in the world. Even the nearby town of San Lurfa has a history going all the way back to around 9000 BC. The ancient version is called Urfa. And there's a lot more to discover. In fact, archaeologists have found like 11 other tells within a 60-mile radius of Gobleke Tepe, all most likely dating to around the same time that haven't been excavated yet. Of those ancient villages that have been excavated, many have temple enclosures with T-shaped pillars decorated with symbols 
very similar to those at Gobleke Tepe. Most are close by, but a few are as far as 300 kilometers away. It would seem that whatever religion was active at Gobleke Tepe, it was not unique to that site. In fact, it was quite widespread, and we don't know where it spread from, which fascinates me. Well, the original theory is that it spread from Gobleke Tepe, but that has since been called into question. And if it didn't start from Gobleke Tepe, were they bearing their gods to rejoin the main site? This is your fan fiction. I don't know. Well, yours is just, did they hack their gods to death <laughs> and put them in a grave <laughs> and then move on? I don't think they hacked them to death. I think they painstakingly buried them like they'd bury a loved one after hacking them to death. <laughs> <laughs> The enclosure sites at other villages are not as large or elaborate as Gobleke Tepe, and most are younger by at least a few centuries and built within villages, not all by themselves on a hill. Gobleke Tepe, however, was the oldest and most monumental expression of this religion. So that's why Klaus Schmidt saw it as a massive, impressive cathedral from which the religion emanated, and all other sites at ancient villages nearby were kind of like local parish churches. Again, he referred to Gobleke Tepe as a cathedral on a hill for this reason. However, more recent evidence shows that this religion may have been ancient when Gobleke Tepe was built. Klaus Schmidt died in 2014, and just two years before his death in 2012, a new site was unearthed that was about a thousand years older than Gobleke Tepe and located about 200 miles east. This was the ancient village of Bonkuklu Tarla. It also has stone enclosures with T-shaped pillars and a sewer system, communal buildings and private houses, and about 130 graves. Over 100,000 beads were buried in those graves. They were into their bling, Jen. I see myself in a former life. Bonkuklu Tarla hints that Gobleke Tepe, the religion there, wasn't new, that it might have been at least a thousand years old by the time Gobleke Tepe was built. So that's one idea. There's this other site, one of the most interesting sites near Gobleke Tepe, it's called Karahan Tepe, and it's only about 35 miles away. It's about 300 years younger than Gobleke Tepe. Karahan Tepe is similar to Gobleke Tepe in a lot of ways. For instance, it also has enclosures with megalithic T-shaped pillars decorated with images of animals, mostly male animals. Or at least biologically male. How they handle gender, we don't know. They had dongs. But it's also quite different from Gobleke Tepe in a lot of ways. For one thing, there are more depictions of human beings at Kaharan Tepe. And where they do appear, humans are often depicted as being under attack by the many fierce carnivorous animals on the pillars, which appear to go for the head a lot. There are quite a few depictions of people with their heads getting grabbed or eaten by predators. I mean, it kind of ties into the cult of the severed head, right? Totally. And also, it makes a lot of sense when you think about why you fear predators, the areas of your body that if a predator attacks are definite death blows, your jugular. I think you're onto something there. I agree with you. And one thing I want to say, too, is that at Gublaka Tepe, it has been observed that the animals on the pillars are, as some people have said, menacing animals they are predator animals mostly i don't think that's 100 percent true because some of them are not but like the birds are vultures for example the insects are scorpions you know like the animals 
are uh, scary. And there are some like RX. I guess RX are kind of scary too. Gazelles, maybe not. I don't know how scary a gazelle is. But like they're predator animals mostly. If they're not predators, I'd say they're maybe carrion animals. So I do think like that's what they're looking at. They're looking at animals that will eat either human flesh or the flesh of other beings or in the case of a scorpion, have the ability to paralyze and kill. Well, there's also ducks. Ducks have a corkscrew penis. So I would be scared of a duck. I think we all know that ducks are serial rapists. (laughs) Ducks are terrifying. You're right. Ducks. Ducks are terrifying. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's where you've landed. Okay. (laughs) Kaharan Tepe was not just a religious site. It appears to have been an active village where people lived as well as worshiping. That makes it more similar to other local villages where the religious temples were integrated into people's daily lives and part of their community and not set apart, which makes it slightly different from Goblake Tepe. So Kaharan Tepe is also different in that it has some really unique structures. For instance, a rock-cut chamber carved into the bedrock of the limestone plateau. It's not like one of the um, Goblake Tepe enclosures that were built of rock. It's carved down into the limestone itself. And in this chamber carved into the bedrock of the limestone plateau, in this rock-cut chamber, there were 11 giant megalithic peens. Mega-peen. 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 It's the garden of mega-peens. We have finally arrived. How many, how many hours in is this? Oh, 7,000. Guarded by the figure of a human-headed, bearded snake man emerging from the wall. Because it was a weird scene. And I'm going to tell you what, Jen, this was the original Lost City of D. (laughs) When I die, scatter my ashes in the Garden of Megapenes. Before we, like, go too far off, I want to talk for a minute about those bearded snake men. Oh, please. Oh, please. So here's the thing I know from mythology, and again, this is Western, mostly Greek mythology, which, let's be honest, would have come from this more ancient Anatolian area. Maybe some of it would have, but this is like 7,000 years of distance, right? So like... All of this is just conjecture. This is the booze and berries talking here. Totally. But what I was going to say is like, the interesting thing for me here is this bearded snake man, right? We know snakes were like supposed to go in between the worlds, We also know, like, the ancient founders of Athens was a snake dude. Are they trying to call back to Gobleke Tepe? A snake man with a human head. That's what I'm saying, right? Or are they trying to call back to something even older that we don't know about? Probably not, but booze and berries. Can we just linger in the garden of the Megapenes for a minute? Can we? How big are they? Tell me more. They're large. Jenny, could you straddle one? They're eight feet high, Jen. It's not just about how high you are. It's about how wide you are. I can't tell you about the girth. I will tell you that they're eight feet high. I mean, look, you could straddle it if you want, but you're going to need some, you know, yoga blocks. (laughs) You're going to need to be real flexible and some yoga blocks. Both of us are going to need yoga blocks because we have short legs. (laughs) Okay, if it's an eight foot tall, I can't straddle it, guys. I'm sorry. I keep climbing to the top and sit on it. There's no straddling here. Not an ancient history fangirl. Do we straddle the megapenes? No. No, we don't. But we can climb to the top and sit on it. Do we sit and rotate? Potentially. (laughs) No! (laughs) 
<laughs> mode. We sit there reverently, maybe sort of meditate a little on the energy of the megapine, possibly. That's what you're doing. I'm not answering for what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> sweet baby bisexual Jesus. <laughs> sweet baby bisexual Jesus. It's fine. <laughs> And now my grandma's looking down for me from her eternal rest and going, and hell. And I'm like, well, I have no soul anyway because I'm a ginger. It's fine. I will say the Garden of Megapines has something for everyone. And that something is Megapines. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck editing this episode. <laughs> Anyhow, so Gablecka so Tepe has a rich historical context. <laughs> It wasn't just a lone cathedral in the wilderness. It was part of a large interconnected community of settlements and gardens of megapines, all sharing a culture and religion that was very decentric. It was the lost continent of D throughout the Stone Hills and beyond, as far as 200 miles away. The movie she's talking about is The Lost City, starring Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, and Brad Pitt. We're moving on from the Garden of Megapines. So one important thing about Gobleke Tepe that is important to mention in terms of um, what is and isn't pseudoscience is that Gobleke Tepe did force archaeologists to rethink history. So the Sphinx water erosion enthusiasts sometimes accuse the established archaeology of being too inflexible, too blinded by tradition, too invested in their own entrenched research positions to ever consider a theory that breaks the mold. How can new, innovative ideas find a foothold in such an intolerant environment? Established archaeologists do change their views. They did when Gobleke Tepe came to light. Before Gobleke Tepe was discovered, archaeologists believed that human development went like this. During the Paleolithic, people lived in small hunter-gatherer groups that were highly mobile. They moved to follow seasonal herds, find the best forage, avoid inhospitable weather, and avoid conflict with other peoples. At some point, people started to live in permanent settlements, supporting themselves through agriculture and animal husbandry. This happened first in the Fertile Crescent area with the ancient agricultural cultures of the Mesopotamian, the earliest of which was the Sumerians. According to the prevailing wisdom, the Sumerians were the earliest known inventors of agriculture and writing. They built the oldest urban centers, and with urbanization and agriculture came social hierarchies, highly stratified societies, divisions of labor, and religion. Organized religion, so the theory went, could not arise without those other things in place. Huge megalithic temple complexes didn't arise until cities and agriculture did, because building on that scale could only be accomplished with food surpluses that could only be had through agriculture and large workforces that could only be found in urban centers. Gobleke Tepe threw that all into confusion. It's approximately 4,000 years older than the oldest Sumerian settlements. It was built long before domesticated animals or agriculture or social stratification or even in this area of the world, pottery. It wasn't built by farmers or town dwellers. It was built by hunter-gatherers. There are clues about who built the monument everywhere you look. First off, all the animals carved on Gobleke Tepe's pillars and the pillars of nearby sites like Kaharan Tepe. For that matter, they're all wild animals. There are no depictions of domesticated animals anywhere. 
The animals depicted at Kublake Tepe and associated sites are either predators and other scary creatures like bobcats, snakes, vultures, scorpions, or prey animals that hunter-gatherers would have hunted, like ducks with their horrible corkscrew penises and gazelles. All would have been local to the area. Look, we all know what the scariest animal is on the pillars of Gobleke Tepe, <laughs> and it is, in fact, the ducks. <laughs> With their horrible corkscrew penises. The corkscrew penises didn't make it into the Garden of Megapenes. Thank fuck for that. Only straight up and down penises in the Garden of Megapenes. Thank you very much. There's little, if any, evidence of agriculture in the area until after Gobleke Tepe was built. In fact, some researchers believe that Gobleke Tepe provided the impetus for development of agriculture in general. It may have been the exact spot where agriculture was invented, ground zero for the entire Neolithic. To build a monumental structure like Gobleke Tepe, you need a surplus of food and you need a large workforce. According to the pre-existing theory, the only way you could have either of those is if people were settled in agricultural societies and large urban centers, where you can get food surpluses to feed a large workforce. It helps if you have a stratified society with divisions of labor, an enslaved or serf underclass you can force to work, and an elite that can give orders and keep people on task. So Gobleke Tepe shouldn't exist at all, right? But it does. Somehow, mobile hunter-gatherer societies were coming together at this one time in this one place to build these incredible structures, fill them in, and then build them again once every few generations. And they were doing it without agriculture or urban centers or stratified societies to keep everyone in line. But this area was not without resources. It's dry and arid now, but once Gobleke Tepe would have overlooked a vast plain full of rivers and marshes, teeming with birds, fish, huge herds of gazelle, and aurochs passing through. Maybe these people had food surpluses without the agriculture. There are signs of massive feasts that took place at Gubleke Tepe, to feed worshippers or to feed a workforce, maybe both. The animal bones from these feasts were all from wild animals, mostly gazelles and aurochs. There's no sign of domesticated animals. There was no agriculture when Gobleke Tepe was built, but there's extensive evidence that people were processing wild grains in large volumes. Near the dig site at Gobleke Tepe, there's a field about the size of a football field that appears to have been a dumping ground for stone rubble, including broken tools used for grinding grain. Archaeologists at the dig site called it the rock garden and more or less ignored it, until 2016, when an archaeologist named Laura Dietrich started cataloging all the rocks in the rock garden. What she found was over 10,000 grinding stones used to process grain, as well as mortars and pestles, grinding slabs, and almost 650 carved stone vessels and platters, some big enough to hold over 52 gallons of liquid. It would seem that grain was being processed at a far larger scale at Gobleke Tepe than anywhere else in the area, and that epic feasts at Gobleke Tepe included huge vats of porridge and meat stews centuries before animal or plant domestication. There may have even been some beer. I don't like beer, but I'd take it in this instance. Oh my god, I would drink beer at Gobleke Tepe, good lord. I would too, I'm at Gobleke Tepe, right? Bring me to the Garden of Megapines and hand me a beer. Listen, I'm a simple person with simple needs. That's all you need in this world. 
Some archaeologists believe that the communal activity at Gobleke Tepe and the necessity of feeding so many people was specifically what led to agriculture and stratified societies. Here's how it worked, according to an article called Neolithic Gathering and Feasting at Gobleke Tepe by Jens Notroff and Oliver Dietrich, two researchers working at the site. Quote, Ethnologic and historical analogies emphasize the importance of regular gatherings and collective activities as means of maintaining social cohesion in hunter-gatherer communities. Gatherings also allowed for the exchange of information, goods, and marriage partners. Such large-scale gatherings naturally need to be established in locations that are known and easily accessible for the participating groups. The topographical situation of Gobleke Tepe as a landmark overlooking the surrounding plains seems a perfectly suitable central space for these groups and people inhabiting the wider region. Large communal tasks executed as collective work events, reflected in the apparently continuous construction activity at Gobleke Tepe, provided a unifying reason for people to come together. Large workforces means lavish feasts. Evidence of flint artifacts, fragments of stone vessels, other ground stone tools, and in particular an impressively large number of animal bones, above all gazelle and aurochs, supports this. Repetitive feasting at Gobleke Tepe may have played an essential role not only in creating and strengthening social bonds among the individuals and groups meeting here, but also must have stressed the economic potential of these hunter-gatherers to repeatedly feed such large crowds. Consequently, new food resources and processing techniques may have been explored, subsequently paving the way for a complete change in subsistence strategy. This suggests that the early appearance of monumental religious architecture and all that involves led to the emergence of agriculture and animal husbandry and the onset of food production and the Neolithic way of life. End quote. Drops Mike. Whoa. <laughs> let's break it down just a tad. <laughs> so let's pick that mic up. So, Gebleke Tepe was a gathering place for disparate groups of highly mobile hunter-gatherers who had seasonal settlements in the area. It was a place for these groups to come together, and with its frequent construction projects and religious activity, it provided a reason for people to come together. Of course, those large groups of people had to be fed, and in addition to hunting, the people at Gobleke Tepe experimented with processing cereals in large volumes. And perhaps it was this that led to animal domestication and agriculture in the Fertile Crescent. In other words, Gobleke Tepe was ground zero for the invention of agriculture and animal husbandry. I mean, my brain has to soak that up for a second. Yeah, and if you think about it, if people know that there's going to be a gigantic feast and they're going to get a full belly, of course they're going to go there. Like, these are hunter-gatherers. They're hungry all the time. But also, if you know that, like, your gods need you to do some work on the temple and the gazelles and the aurochs are grazing here and this is the best time to, like, hunt them in this area and see your friend from seven villages over, you're going to go, right? It's like a big family reunion. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, it's it's all about the food. It's all about the friendships. It's all about the relationships. It's all about the religion. It's all like all of it, you know, and you can see it from miles away because it's on this giant promontory where it doesn't make sense to live, but everyone can see it from a large distance away. So just to back this theory up, Gobleke Tepe is only about 20 miles away from Karakadag, a shield volcano with a strain of wild wheat growing on its slopes. Geneticists have found that this strain is the closest relative to domesticated wheat ever found, suggesting this was the place where wheat was first domesticated, which, 
again, my mind has to just, whew, for a minute. And that's not all, Jen. No. There's also evidence that those wild aurochs were the first domesticated in the Anatolia region around 10,500 years ago. That's perhaps the oldest evidence of cattle breeding anywhere in the world. It continued for 2,000 years in this area before spreading to Greece and then the rest of Europe. So this may have been ground zero for both wheat production and cattle breeding right here at Gobleke Tepe. Wild. To be clear, all of that started after Gobleke Tepe was going. So the need to feed more people was what drove that. This religion is what led to the feeding of the whole world. Yeah. The discovery of Gobleke Tepe required archaeologists to completely change their ideas about how human civilization developed. It would seem organized religion didn't come only after the infrastructure was there to support it. In fact, it may have been the driving reason complex societies developed in the first place. That's huge. That's the same revelation that a 10,000-year-old sphinx might have given us. And archaeologists didn't deny it because they were too stuck in their ways. They looked at the evidence and the evidence changed their minds. And this is the whole thing I would say in the face of the Sphinx water erosion theory anyway, is that like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Like you can go go ahead and claim that Atlantis was real or the aliens are real, but give me the evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So I mentioned before that Robert Schock wrote about Gobleke Tepe and has used it to validate his own theories. Is he wrong? I mean, if it turns out that advanced megalithic structures can be built without massive urban centers and agriculture that supports them, that could give some credence to his views about the Sphinx, right? I can't really speak to what Shock says about Gobleke Tepe because I haven't read his book. I've read some articles. I haven't read the whole book. But what really tips me off to pseudoscience in general here is the belief in an advanced civilization. Gobleke Tepe might be unexpected, it might have turned our understanding of human development on its head, but it doesn't exist outside of the context of its time. Yeah, the people who built Gobleke Tepe used the tools that would have been available in the Paleolithic. Flint tools littered the ground at Potbelly Hill or, you know, Gobleke Tepe Hill. There's a whole rock garden full of grain processing paraphernalia straight from the Paleolithic. That's how we know this. There is no evidence of any advanced civilization here. The civilization and technology in the ground is entirely from the Stone Age. There is no need to imagine an advanced civilization, one that left zero evidence of its existence on this earth, to understand how Gobleke Tepe was built. It was built by hunter-gatherers who needed a place and a reason to congregate for survival in the wake of the last Ice Age. So I feel like we need to talk about the Anunnaki, Jen. It's time. It's time. So we may never understand the religious beliefs or mythology that the builders of Gobleke Tepe shared, but there's one take that I really like, and I'm going to share it before we go. The ancient Sumerians, those who until recently were believed to have invented like the whole Neolithic, had an ancient pantheon of gods called the Anunnaki. They were believed to be descendants of the deities of heaven and earth, An and Ki, and their role was to determine the fate of mankind. Their earliest mention in literature comes at around 2144 BC. Their worship spread to the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and other cultures in the Fertile Crescent. They're an undifferentiated group of extremely powerful gods, massive in size, who were said to cloak themselves in material called melem, that, if a mortal laid eyes on it, would cause their skin to tingle. 
There are different numbers of Anunnaki in different texts. One ancient text claims that 50 of them are associated with one ancient city alone. Sumerians believe that each city had a patron deity, which physically lived in that city. And again, not so different from the ancient Romans, in my opinion. In some traditions, the Anunnaki were eventually banished to the underworld by younger generations of gods. One ancient belief among the Sumerians was that advances in civilizations such as agriculture, animal domestication, and weaving came from the Anunnaki, who lived on a sacred mountain called Ikir. This idea was so central to their religion that the Sumerians regularly built mountain houses in their communities that were elaborate temples full of sacred rooms, representative of the mountain home of the Anunnaki. Ziggurats eventually arose out of the mountain house tradition, and these may have given rise to the pyramids. The Anunnaki have been appropriated by many pseudoscientists and pseudohistorians over the years. In Chariots of the Gods by Eric Von Doniken, Von Doniken advances the theory that the Anunnaki were actually an advanced race of aliens, and it gets more batshit from there. I feel like most people who have heard of the Anunnaki think that they're aliens. So I'm going to just give you a taste of how batshit this gets. There's a book called The Twelfth Planet by Zachariah Sitchin that was published in 1976. And I just have to quote you the summary that I found on Wikipedia, Jen, because it's, it's out there. Quote, in his 1976 book, The Twelfth Planet, Author Zachariah Sitchin claimed that the Anunnaki were actually an advanced humanoid extraterrestrial species from the undiscovered planet Nibriu, (laughs) (laughs) who came to Earth around 500,000 years ago. Of course. Ray, let's put that date in context, and constructed a base of operations in order to mine gold after discovering that the planet was rich in the precious metal. According to Sitchin, the Anunnaki hybridized their species and Homo erectus via in vitro fertilization, as you do. As you do in ancient times. As one does, in order to create humans as a slave species of miners. Sitchin claimed that the Anunnaki were forced to temporarily leave Earth's surface and orbit the planet when Antarctic glaciers melted, causing the Great Flood, which also destroyed the Anunnaki's bases on Earth. These had to be rebuilt, and the Anunnaki, needing more humans to help in this massive effort, taught mankind agriculture. So this is what we're dealing with here, you guys, with regard to the Anunnaki. As we said, this is obviously batshit. But what if the Anunnaki, an undifferentiated, unnamed group of gods from a sacred mythical mountain, were actually an ancient cultural memory from the time of Gobleke Tepe? What if the people of Sumer were preserving an ancient tradition that said that everything they relied on in their world, their weaving, their agriculture, their bread and beer, their domesticated animals, came from the stone hills, just beyond the horizon of time and memory? What if the headless gods of the stone enclosures were the real Anunnaki, and now we've seen them? Klaus Schmidt entertained this idea. He speculated that the Anunnaki may have represented a very old, barely remembered pantheon that originated at Gobleke Tepe. It's quite possible that the Anunnaki represent a vague cultural memory of the oldest religion we've ever found evidence for. There's no way to tell if he was right, but I like to think maybe he was. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with whatever we're talking about next. We don't quite know yet. It's a mystery. Because I'm working on it. In the meantime, 
Come find us on social at Ancient Histfan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl, and you can get all kinds of new content. There's videos of us discussing fun things like the Lost City of D. It's the Lost City with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum and Daniel Radcliffe. We do extra episodes about history and mythology and little side quests we discover. We save parts of some of our longer interviews for our Patreon. It's pretty fascinating. You should join. So we have some Patreon members to thank today, don't we, Jen? We do. Oh, apologies for anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Laura, just Laura. Jessa DeLynn. Nianna Gray. Vicky Davies. Oceane Bouchard. Megan Mortimer. Kaylee Shunk. Tiger Boo. William Ferguson. Daisy V. Kathleen, just Kathleen. Chad McMullen. Doug, just Doug. Scott Dudfield. Anon, just Anon. Clara Kolomaznikova. Apologies, I'm, I'm sure I screwed that up. Erica Ray. And Chris P. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah, you're the reason this podcast is still going. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>